Go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Might be throwing you for a loop there because we're studying the book of Revelation. But we're going to Genesis chapter 1. So go ahead and put that first slide up there. This is a picture of my Bible. I want you to see that I, I believe what I'm talking about here. I believe in marking up my Bible. I think you should mark yours up. If it gets so marked up you can't figure out what it's supposed to say, then get a new one and start it over. And then you give that one to one of your kids when they're old. But there's nothing wrong with marking your Bible. It reminds you of important things. So I have it marked in my Bible. What you see up there is, I, be, I believe it's, it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. But in your notes you see Genesis 1:5, 8, 13, 19, 23, and 31. That's because all those verses say the exact same thing with one word variation in each one, and that's the number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. So the title of our sermon is Where the Gap Theory Actually Exists. And being a creation geek, I can't help but talk about the gap theory whenever I get a chance. So you may have heard of the gap theory. It's an old theory. It's the theory... That in between the days of creation, there's expanses of time. Thousands of years, millions of years, billions of years. And, and God did one thing and then waited a long time and then did a second thing and waited a long time and then did a third thing and waited a long time. And I'm just going to tell you right up front because we have visitors who may not know me. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. And, and, and I want to talk about it because you're going to talk to people that believe in that. And I want you to have evidence that you can show them, and this is so great because it comes right from Scripture. So when you study the Bible, there's one thing you should never forget. God does not repeat himself by accident. He, he doesn't stutter, he doesn't forget what he said, and he doesn't bumble his way through. So if God repeats himself, it means something. Remember the phrase, holy, 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 we read in Revelation, we talked about that. In the Jewish culture, one holy means you're, you're holy, Two holies means you're very holy, and if you add a third one, that means you are the holiest of all things that are holy. So when it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they are actually saying something with each holy. And so when we see God repeating himself, we have to ask the question, why is he repeating yourself? Why is he repeating himself? Now, Genesis chapter 1, there's a lot of views on when it was written and how it was written. The prevailing view is that Moses wrote it down all at once one day while he was um, leading the people through the, through the wilderness, and that he wrote the entire Pentateuch. That theory exists because it says, and Moses wrote down the Pentateuch. But that doesn't mean wrote, Moses penned it all. And I have a different theory. I've shared it from time to time, from place to place, and I'll just keep the short version by telling you that I think Genesis 1 is one of the few places in Scripture that was actually dictated to the writer from the mouth of God. All of Scripture is either eyewitness testimony or based on eyewitness testimony. Moses would have been, writ would have been writing hearsay. I think God gave this directly to the author, whoever it was, and he said, this is what I did during creation. And so we have God's first-hand account, his eyewitness testimony, because he was the only eyewitness there. So he wrote down his eyewitness testimony of creation, and this is what he said. So in his own words, dictated to men, he did not accidentally repeat himself, and he did not stutter. 
He repeated this phrase six times for a reason. The phrase he repeated is, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and then the second day, and then the third day, and the fourth all the way through the sixth day. When it came to day seven, he said, and it's the seventh day, and he rested. So God's trying to communicate something to us. Let's look at our notes. A in your notes, the only word in this sentence with more than one meaning is the word day. And, and that's where people get thrown, or that's where people take, take their liberties. The word day can mean two things, and the context is what determines what, what it means. It can mean, as it says in your notes, back in the day or an era of time. If I say back in the day, we had to listen to cassette players. Some of you know what that means. Some of you have no idea what that means. But that means that back when I was a kid or when I was a teenager, this is what we did. That's, a, that's not a 24-hour period of t- time. That's an era of time. We might say in the days of Noah. That's a phrase we find in Scripture that means back when Noah lived. We might say days of yesteryear, things like that. That's an era of time. It's a legitimate definition of the word day. People like to take that definition. They like to add 2 Peter 3.8 to it. It's in your notes. Where it said uh, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And they say, see, a day is a thousand years. They forget the as. See, a day is a thousand years. So right there we have thousands of years in each day. That's how we know it's a long period of time and not a 24-hour period of, of, of time. It's not a day. But if you read that in context, the, the meaning of that phrase is time is irrelevant to God. God does not need a day. He does not need a thousand years. He is not bound by time. God exists outside of time. Man is bound by time. Man has been concerned with time. God is not concerned with time. So when, when man says, hey, God's not coming back very soon, God says, well, you're in a different world than I am. Time is different to us. It's still soon for me. That's the meaning of that text. So it really does not apply I brought it up because it's usually brought up out of context. And so the other meaning of day, the only other choice we have is a 24-hour period of time. So it says, and there was evening and there was morning, the first long period of time, no, the first 24 hours of time. Okay, so be in your notes, evening and morning, those two specific words tell us it can only mean a 24-hour period of time. You see, God was writing this to us. God often wrote things in Scripture that may not have even made sense in the day, like they may not have known what they were saying, but now we look back and we know because God looked forward and he said, you know, one day Satan is going to try to influence my people and he's going to influence the world. He's going to try to erase me from the creation story He's going to try to make me irrelevant. And they're going to come up with this thing called evolution, and it's going to require time. The magic element in evolution is time, so I'm going to take the time away from them now. And so when my people read Scripture, they'll read about this, and they'll say, oh, no, that's not true, because God created in six literal days. So he was thinking ahead. And he said, I'm going to say it every single time so they can't be mistaken. And I'm going to throw in more words to create the context so it's beyond even question. Evening and morning are some of those days. Because if you have an evening and you have a morning, you have a 24-hour day. 
That's the only way that works. So we have 24-hour days. C, numbering them, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, lets them know that they are in succession. So it's six days of creation, six days in a row, six 24-hour days. D, God is literally saying that creation took place in six consecutive 24-hour periods of time. E, let me get a little more bold. No one ever read this and did not come to this conclusion. No scholar, no, no, no English person, speaking person, no Bible scholar, no one ever read this simply to read it and say, God, what are you saying to me? And came up with anything other than six literal days of creation. God refers back to it when he gives us the Ten Commandments, and he says, In six days I created the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day I rested. Therefore you will have a day of rest. He referred back to the six days of creation. Jesus referred back to the six days of creation. No one ever read this and thought, I wonder what a day means. They knew what it was because it was morning and evening, and there was day one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. F, it is excruciatingly obvious what God meant when this was inspired. And then, so G, the gap theory, requires man's inferior intellect to rewrite God's superior message, describing his miraculous week of creation. So that's the wrong gap theory, and I could not resist going through that, so thank you for listening. I hope that helps you in some way, but to me that's just, it's, it's, I love it when scripture is so absolutely clear. Six, 24 days. So number two in your notes, then what does that have to do with Revelation? Well, what, what made me think of that? Well, go to Revelation chapter 5, back to our book. We did Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 last week, and we, we saw how God was showing the people that he just got done writing the letters to, this, the seven churches. He was showing them in comparison what man is doing versus what he is doing. And by seeing what he was doing, they're supposed to take comfort that these men had no power over them. So in chapter 4, we see the throne room of God, and in chapter 5, we see a continued story of the throne room of God, but we see the lamb, who looked like he had been slain, coming to the throne and taking the scroll and opening it. And then chapter 6 begins the seven seals. In chapter 4... John sees what is happening right then. He sees what's happening right then, in time, in context. These are the letters that Jesus wrote to you. This is what's happening right now. In chapter 5, it jumps to a future event. It jumps to a future event, and, and there is a gap there. There's no indication that there is no gap. We know from history that the things that are said to happen have not happened yet. 144,000 Jews have not been saved and sealed. The, the moon has not uh, turned red and the, the sea has not turned to blood. Uh, all the things that are going to happen now in the rest of Revelation have not happened. So chapter 5 is kind of a transition going from present to future. And so this is a true gap. We're supposed to see this gap. We are supposed to consider the gap and think about the gap. And, and they, when they read it, said, this is where we are, and that is where we're going. 
we read it and we say, that's where they were. We're still there with them. So we're still in the now, and then the rest is where we're going. So we have that same thing to think about. So let's look at our notes. Under number two, how does this have to do with Revelation? A, between the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six is a true gap. It's a true gap. It, it includes chapter four or chapter five. It's, it's there. It's, it's a little vague to put your finger down, but in that space, there's a gap between what was written to the churches and what is still to come. B, we are living in this gap. Jesus Christ has not returned. The rapture has not taken place. The tribulation has not begun. It is still something in the future. It's still something we're looking forward to. Matter of fact, it should be something we're anticipating with joy. Because when Jesus returns, when the rapture takes place, all of us believers go with him. And we're gone. We're out of here. And that means that we're closer to the new heaven and the new earth. So we would rejoice in this. We are living in this gap, and it has lasted about 2,000 years so far. See, I want to remind you of something we read in one of those letters. Revelation 3.10 says, And I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. I mentioned to you back then this was looking forward to the tribulation period. I will keep you, which means you won't be here, you won't be present for it. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Hour of trial means a specific time when trials are going to come. What kind of trials? Trials that are going to affect the entire world, the whole world. So the whole world, all at once, will experience a trial, and the point of the trial is to test what's being tested. The answer, the question is being asked, are you going to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or are you not? God is going to make it so obvious during the tribulation period that you must choose Jesus, or you must choose not to follow Jesus, that that's the test, and you will pass the test or fail the test, and then you will march into your consequences or your reward. So this rapture, this, this uh, tribulation period has been spoken of, and now we're going to study it. D in your notes, John's vision is sequential. John's vision didn't stop, but not the series of events. The series of events are not from day to day. We have a, a jump, okay? Let's look at, turn your page over, and let's look at number three. Go ahead and put the next slide up there. I showed you the, the first part. This is another part of my Bible. Not quite as written in, but you notice before chapter 6 begins, I have the word rapture written there. The Bible nowhere says, on this day, at this time, the rapture will take place. Matter of fact, we're going to read and we're going to discover that it actually says you'll, you'll never know when the rapture is going to take place. When it happens, you will be surprised, and no one will have predicted it. So in my study, I have determined that this is exactly where the rapture fits in sometime in chapter 5 and before chapter 6. So three in your notes, the most significant event that takes place in this gap is the rapture. Okay, it's the rapture. It is the most significant, number four, because it signals the beginning of the tribulation. So the rapture takes place and that signals the beginning of the tribulation. We'll talk more about that as we actually study chapter six next week. Number five in your notes, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some scriptures regarding the rapture. 
seemed like a good idea. It's something I wanted to talk about, so we're going to talk about the rapture. So we're going to stay in this gap today. We're going to go to our notes. We're going to look up some other scriptures. If you're quick, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. I will read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Sounds pretty dramatic to me. I don't think anyone's going to be going, Oh, what was that? I think if we're called, we're going to hear the trumpet, we're going to hear the voice. And it says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What do we learn about the rapture from this passage? In the rapture, Jesus comes down, believers go up. Why is that important? Because there is a second coming of Christ, also talked about in Scripture, and they are not the same thing. The rapture takes place when all the believers are taken away from the earth, and then everything continues on down here. All the believers are taken away, and then the second coming is when Jesus comes all the way to the earth, and we have the battle of Armageddon. So one, one is the beginning of the tribulation, one is the end of the tribulation. So Jesus comes down, we meet him in the air, and we go to where he is. Second thing in your notes, the dead in Christ go first, the alive in Christ go second. I don't know why order matters here, but they were worried about their ancestors, and, and Paul says, don't worry about your ancestors, they get to go before you do. It's literally like the blink of an eye sooner, so it's not like they're going to get any better seat than you. But the dead in Christ go first, and, and this is the dead in Christ for all time. The dead in Christ who lived and died before the flood. The dead in Christ who died in the flood. The dead in Christ who died in Babylon. The dead in Christ who died in, 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 in battle. The dead in Christ whose bodies have rotten and disappeared. That to me is super cool. These bodies that no longer exist in any way, shape, or form anywhere on the earth will rise they will be formed into perfect specimens of humanity the way God intended them to be at creation, and they will meet Christ in the air. They will go first. Some of the graves will be empty. Some of the empty spaces where we didn't know there was a body will be empty, and some will just form and appear. This is kind of morbid, but I hope to be cremated because I think it will be more exciting to be raptured if I've been cremated. <laughs> Millions of pieces of me coming together is much more exciting than just my pickled body coming up. So that's what I'm hoping for. Uh, you can take what you want from that. The dead in Christ go first, the alive in Christ go second, and that'll be the only thing you remember today. <laughs> Last thing under Thessalonians, we go with the Lord. Just another little thing that says it's not the second coming. So, so what we know so far is that Jesus will come down to the earth, partway down, in the atmosphere somewhere. He'll come down, we'll go up to meet him, and then we'll leave. I believe we go to paradise at that point in time, and we await the next thing to happen. In Matthew 24, we don't need to turn there because I can't read the whole chapter, but I've highlighted a few things for you. 
This answers the question, when will these things happen? What are the signs of the end times? Now, the end times includes more than the rapture, but it starts with the rapture. So all these things will be happening before the rapture takes place. So we can ask ourselves, do we see these things happening? So in verse 5 of Matthew 24, it tells us there'll be false prophets. Now, I don't have a great memory, but I could name a dozen, half a dozen at least, false prophets right now for memory. If you let me use Google, I can name 30. We can go through history. We can name dozens upon dozens. False prophets are not in any shortage, so check. We've got that one. Wars and rumors of wars. They're fighting wars. We have the war in Ukraine. There's rumors of wars. What's going on in Afghanistan, Iraq? We have coups taking place, overthrowing governments. There's always stuff going on. There's definitely wars and rumors of wars. Famines and earthquakes. We seem to be having more famines and earthquakes now than we did before. So the increase would, would indicate, yes, we're getting closer. Persecution of believers. I think that's kind of gone up and down through history, but we're on an upswing. And even if we're on a downswing, it happens a lot. So there's persecution of believers. Not a problem. That's taken care of. Wickedness will increase. Love will grow cold. We see that all over the place. Just look at the riots of a summer or two ago. Uh, that's, that's love growing cold. That's wickedness increasing. Um, think of all the conspiracies we hear about, whether they're true or not. There's, there's a lack of love and there's wickedness involved. Verse 14, the gospel will be preached to all. That's a positive thing. I don't know how we'll know when that happens, but that's something that has to happen. I'm not even sure we can know exactly what that means, but, but God does, and he'll make sure that happens. Then verse 36 and 37 give us some other clues. Verse 36 says, no one will know the day. So we can't predict it. We can't plan for it. We can't economically prepare for it. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we need to be ready as if it's tomorrow and as if it's 100 years from now. But verse 37 says it will be like it was in the days of Noah. There's that days. In the era of Noah, that's how it will be. How was it for Noah? Noah was called the only righteous man on earth. Now, we don't know if anyone got saved while Noah was preaching or while the water was, was rising. We don't know a lot of that stuff, but we know that at one point in time, God said, Noah, you're the guy. Get your family, build a boat. It was, it was evil, and it was all evil. I don't know if we're there yet or not. It wouldn't take much convincing for me to believe we were. Maybe the Christian influence is the only thing holding us back. Maybe the Christian fight against abortion is the only thing keeping our country from being punished. Maybe the Christians are standing in the way, gaining more time for our loved ones to find Christ. Who knows? But all these things will happen. All these things will be happening. The end will come, and it begins with the rapture. And it moves immediately into the tribulation. 2 Peter 3.10 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now this day of the Lord is like the end times. It includes a lot of stuff. Begins with the rapture, ends with the new heaven and the new earth. So the day of the Lord, we could say the end times, but the end, the day of the Lord, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. 
and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That's a summary of that entire time zone, that entire process. What I want to focus on is the word thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It begins with the rapture, so we can say the rapture will come like a thief. All right, the rapture will come like a thief. That means the rapture will be sudden, unexpected, and violent. A thief doesn't announce he's coming, doesn't call ahead to see if you're ready, does not make a reservation. A thief shows up when he thinks you're not going to be ready or when you're not going to be home to steal your stuff, right? We don't expect a thief. You know, if we expect a thief, then we lock our windows and doors and we guard our stuff. So a thief comes suddenly, unexpectedly, and violently. Our house was broken into once. We lived in California. A guy got in a window, took five windows to finally break into one, got in, went through, just opened every drawer and every cupboard, throwing stuff on the floor, looking for whatever he wanted to find, uh, took the kids' backpacks and filled them up along the way, finally found our little stash of the extra house payment we had, was our little safety net, took that, left everything else, went out the window and took off. Even that peaceful break-in and theft, when no one was home and no one got caught and no one was threatened, even in that peaceful break-in, it was violent. He broke into the house, he tore up our stuff and, and stole from us. When the rapture takes place, it will be violent. Think of some of the movies. They get a few things right here and there. If there's a Christian man flying an airplane when the rapture takes place, all of a sudden there is an airplane without a pilot. And that airplane will come down eventually. There will be truck drivers who are Christians driving very big vehicles on the road. They will disappear and their truck will go somewhere. Cars will go back and forth. Think of, of anything and everything where... A person is required, and when they disappear, there's going to be chaos. The world will not miss the rapture. There's no way they're going to miss the rapture. The news will be millions of people disappear, chaos all over the world, fires taking place, rescue operations taking place, resources not able to be located, rescuers not found, we need help, we don't know what happened. That's going to be the headline. Then Satan's going to come in, a little preview. Satan's going to come in. He's going to go, you know what? This was expected. This was all part of the plan. By the way, I'm here to save you from all this. And It's a little more subtle than that. That's what he's going to do. But the rapture will be violent. It will be unexpected. And it will be sudden. It will be known. There will be no doubt it takes place. And those who have heard a revelation, who have read the scripture, they will automatically say, oh, I think I've heard of this. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Actually, I read 51 and 52. It says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which means we will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Same group of people as before, the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ. The dead in Christ will be raised from the dead, imperishable, and we, those who are alive in Christ, will be changed or transformed. So when you notice, the rapture will take the living and the dead. We've already talked about that. 
The rapture will be instantaneous, the twinkling of an eye. That's not the blinking of an eye, it's the twinkling of an eye. It's the time it takes for light to pass through your lens into your retina. That's, that's the twinkling of an eye. That is the literal definition of the twinkling of an eye. So in that much time, you can't even snap your fingers that fast. The dead will rise, and, and those living will be taken, and they will be transformed. Last thing in your notes there, we are made imperishable and immortal. We're made imperishable. We're made to not wear out anymore. We're made to no longer suffer from disease. We're made to no longer have genetic defects. We're made to be what God always planned us to be. And we're immortal. We can't die. So we have all of a sudden become what God promised us we would become. And we are all of a sudden in the presence of God. And we are all of a sudden with Jesus. It's not the new heaven and the new earth yet. But we're with Jesus in what we would call heaven now. Uh, the Bible calls paradise. And we're present with God. And then we observe what God is doing and eventually take part in his process. So the rapture is a good thing for us. And actually, it's a good thing for everybody else. Not everybody and everybody, but a lot of people. Because some will die in the event who are not saved, in those car crashes, in those plane crashes, and that kind of stuff. Some will not make it through that day. But others will recognize Christ during the tribulation period, and they will be saved. And if the rapture hadn't taken place, they probably wouldn't be. So God is actually reaching out, evangelizing the world through the rapture. So what are we supposed to do with this information? We recognize it's there. It's talked about in the scripture. We've identified where it's going to take place. Now what are we supposed to do with this? Well, first off, we need to realize and appreciate the patience of God. My grandma was pretty smart, I thought, anyway. And she had a notion when World War I took place that the end was very near and that the rapture was coming because things were happening that fit into Scripture and things were unexplainable. And she said, it can't get any worse. It can't get any worse. So get ready. Christ is coming. And we know he didn't. Then World War II came along, and a lot of people thought, this is it. Like, World War I was bad. This is worse. More people are dying. It's, it's a worse war. This is it. This is, has to be it. And it didn't happen. God is very patient. I'm going to tell you that if he had come back a week and a half after writing this book down, after John penned it and mailed it, he delivered it to the churches. They read it. If one week later he had returned, it would have been fair and it would have been just. And, and it, it would have been the right thing to do. So he could have returned any time. He could have come back yesterday. He could have come back the day before you were born. He could have come back the day before you were saved. He can come back any day. And he could have come back any time. But he has not because he's been patient with us. His patience is that he desires more people to be saved and he desires to give more people the opportunity to be saved and he is being patient to the point where people say, hey, where's this return of Christ you're talking about? And Peter says, hey, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. He's saying, hey, don't get caught up in our time zone. 
It's, it's his time frame. And he's not taking too long. Patience. B, we need to take advantage of the borrowed time God is allowing us to live in. The borrowed time. We got Ron sitting with us today. We could say Ron's living on borrowed time. There were two or three occasions where Ron really wasn't supposed to make it through the ambulance ride, the surgery, all whatever. Living on borrowed time, but Ron, we're all with you. We're in the same boat. We're all living on borrowed time. God is extending His grace to give people an opportunity to accept Him as Lord and Savior before the rapture takes place. And then He's going to give seven more years where He clearly demonstrates who He is and says, now is the time to serve me. Now is the time to choose me. But we're living on borrowed time. We're living in His patience. How am I going to take advantage of that? Well, I should have a little bit of urgency. I should not simply pray once a month on Sunday morning for my unsaved friends because Pastor Dave told me I have to. I should be praying every day. I should be praying weekly. I should be praying all the time for my unsaved friends. And I should be praying things like, Lord, give me an opportunity to have a conversation. Please have them ask me a question that I can answer. Please have them ask me how I lived through this, how I dealt with this, how I'm seen after all this. Help them see things. Help me communicate to them. Let me make a difference in their life. That should be our goal. Because remember, the only thing we're left here for is to share the gospel. We can do anything else God asks us to do in heaven. That's the only thing we're left here for. God is being patient. We're living on borrowed time. So see, we need to take a realistic look at the world and decide what is truly important to invest in and strive for. You know, we're given so many opportunities nowadays, so many things to take our time, our money, and our energy. Sometimes we have to say, you know, that sounds like a really good thing, but that's not going to be my thing. That sounds like a good opportunity, but I'm going to pass because I have this thing I'm working on. I'm, I'm serving God. I have this calling. I'm going to do this. We can't do everything. So we need to evaluate. I'm living on borrowed time. I'm experiencing God's patience. What can I do to make a difference? What can I do to influence? And if you think those thoughts, I think God's going to give you the answer. and He's going to give you opportunities. And he's going to bring people to you. So we have the true gap in Scripture. Next week we'll get back to the actual text of Revelation. And we'll look at chapter 6. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time. Thank you for giving us information in Thessalonians and Matthew and Peter and Corinthians and even earlier in Revelation that we can look at to identify the tribulation and the rapture. And thank you that you've given us all of Scripture so that we can even pinpoint in Revelation where it takes place. Thank you that the rapture is not you saving us from any pain or causing pain for anyone else. It's about evangelism. It's about you making yourself known so that the inhabitants of the earth will be forced to think about you. Thank you for all the events of tribulation that do the same thing so that no one is without excuse. That everyone in that last day, in that testing period, will have to give an answer. Because you are not satisfied letting people wander into hell. You want everyone to have plenty of opportunity. And so you give mankind one more opportunity. Help us 
to do the same thing and to, to share the gospel, to share our faith, to share who you are in both word and deed, but not just deed. Help us to represent you well. May we serve you well. And Father, give us, give us a mindset that, that, that we're here because you're allowing us to be here and you've given us a job to do, and so we're going to do it. Help us to think these things. Help us to process these things. Help us to live these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.